What's going on, everyone? It's Wednesday, May 11th, and you're listening to The Hustle Daily Show. I'm Zachary Crockett, and we've got the whole daily email team in here today. I'm sure you all recognize these names, but let's start out here with Jacob Cohen. How you doing, man? I'm doing well up here in Boston. Going to be 84 on Saturday, but I have no AC, so (laughs) we will see what happens. (laughs) Juliet Bennett-Ryla out in LA. What do you know about weather? Uh, Ironically, it is only 68 today, so I'm doing better than Jacob, (laughs) despite being in Southern California. Nice. All right, and Rob Litterst. I'm calling in from uh, about 45 minutes outside of Boston, but it might as well be another country because I'm deep in burb country out here, but I had no idea it was going to be 85 this weekend. So I don't really know what I'm going to do, Jacob. I'm right there with you. All right. Well, well, to anyone listening here, uh, I promise you that this episode is going to be a lot more interesting than talking about weather. We each came to the table today with a story to talk through, and we've got a full agenda. We're talking iPods, NFTs on Instagram remote work migrations, and a $200 million art sale that's raising some eyebrows. We're also going to field a couple reader questions from our listeners. Oh, yes. (laughs) Real quick, though, just a few things you should know about here. Tom Brady says he's reached an agreement with Fox Sports to become the network's lead analyst once his playing career is over. So expect to see him on the network in like 20 years or so. That's a good one. (laughs) Grindr, a dating app used primarily with the LGBTQ plus community, announced its plans to go public via, what else? A SPAC at a $2.1 billion valuation. Hmm. Netflix told employees that an ad-supported tier could be launched in the last three months or so of 2022. That's a lot sooner than initially anticipated. And Sony and Nintendo warned that console supplies could be tight due to shortages of various component parts. It's already impossible out there to find a Switch, so if you're in the market for one, we're sorry in advance. I'm actually in the market for one, so that's unfortunate. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Poor timing, Jacob. (laughs) Mr. Shot. All right, so Jacob, let's start off with you here. What are you looking at today? Yeah, so yesterday Apple said it's discontinuing the iPod Touch, which is the last version of the iPod that it still sells. By the way, it hasn't been updated since 2019. At the end of the day, the iPod is basically no more, Yeah, whether or not anyone hmm. still used them. It's still a really significant move, though, because it ends really an era of digital music that Apple kicked off back when Steve Jobs first introduced the iPod in 2001. Infamous words, a thousand songs in your pocket. You know, he said, with iPod, listening to music will never be the same again. And he was right, right. of course, but that didn't mean the iPod would be a part of that future forever. Obviously, today there's 90 million songs available to stream on Apple Music, a lot more than 1,000 in your pocket. What's interesting, though, the iPod, a lot of people don't realize is one of the main reasons the iPhone ever became what it became. The iPhone rode on a lot of the commercial success of the iPod. It was really iPod plus phone. That was what the iPhone was. And Mm -hmm. the engineers learned a lot about what could work for a phone and what couldn't. The iPod was, for many people, though, their first introduction to Apple. Definitely was for me. That was the first Apple product I ever had, for sure. Mm -hmm. Wow, I'm surprised those were still around, like, five years ago when you were a kid, Jacob. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> hey, I remember going on the bus to school using a CD player. How about that? <laughs> no way. Yeah. Really? Like back in kindergarten, maybe. That makes me feel better about myself. <laughs> so do you guys know like internal tech emails? It's a newsletter. It's a Twitter account. Have you guys seen that? Yes. Mm-hmm. So they had one today. I think it was probably timed because yeah. the iPod is being announced that it's going away. But it's from somebody at Microsoft talking about like their competitive offerings to the iPod and basically just saying like Apple is so far ahead. And it made me think back to that time because I remember thinking of like all the other MP3 players and just like 
it was absolutely no contest. Like, I don't know if there's ever yeah. been another example of one company just beating the crap out of the competition is bad. All right, uh, Juliet, you got something on Instagram NFTs here for us. Yeah, so Instagram is rolling out NFTs, but not for you or me, just a handful of US-based creators, uh, including Jaden Smith, Gary Vee, and artist Lee Swopes, among others. Uh, so they'll be able to share NFTs to their feed and stories and within messages. Meta said this is in part kind of a way to explore how creators on the platform can make money. And while certain people have made bank on NFTs, Elise Swopes actually made $200,000 on them. Hmm. Uh, NFT sales are down 92% from September of last year, according to the Wall Street Journal. And apparently, uh, the kind of NFTs that people want to buy now are utility NFTs, mm -hmm. meaning they come with stuff. Right. That could mean tickets to a concert, a physical copy of the artwork that you bought, maybe some sort of special experience. There's even NFTs that are attached to bottles of wine and whiskey. But it could also be some sort of digital asset that you could use in the metaverse, which I think maybe what meta is thinking ultimately would happen. Mm. So like Zuckerberg previously talked about how even the clothes your little avatar wears when it's wandering around Horizon Worlds, which is meta's metaverse, is an NFT and you could wear that across whatever other metaverses. So it's possible that we could see Instagram creators selling in-world clothing, accessories, gaming items, tickets to virtual events and experiences, or even real stuff. I was just reading that Kevin Smith, if you want to watch his new movie, you got to buy an NFT. So really? lots of possibilities there. Yeah. yeah, I'm super curious to see like how this actually goes. Because Julia, you mentioned in this piece, like Adam Masseri, the guy who's the head of Instagram, was mm -hmm. talking about how the whole goal is to help creators make money, right? Like that's like one of the big things that they're kind of pushing for. I don't know. It's like... Is someone really going to buy an NFT or are they going to buy an NFT with a utility, which is kind of just like a real thing, but on blockchain? Right. This is why I'm very skeptical of the impact NFTs will have on Instagram, because like what I'm going to see someone's NFT posted that looks like a photo, which is basically just what it is on Instagram and be like impressed by that or, or find that useful. No. Well, it will. Um, <laughs> it will shimmer according to their Twitter. Well, if it's going to shimmer, oh, yeah. I can yeah. take my entire wallet for that. That's great. <laughs> yeah, like a vampire on Twilight. <laughs> yeah. Shimmer. I like the utility NFT point, though. Like that's Jacob and I were talking about Dirt, the uh, newsletter that just got some funding yesterday. And that's their whole thing is I think they self-funded through NFTs up until they got this seed round. And it was like the people that bought these NFTs were not just subscribers, they actually had kind of like input over the editorial direction of the newsletter and stuff like that. And I could definitely see NFTs kind of fitting into the media ecosystem. And the dirt people kind of referenced like streetwear culture, how it's like it allows people to get more and more involved with the brand or whatever it is at kind of different levels of fanhood, which I could totally see. But yeah, I'm skeptical of, uh, of the Instagram NFT play, at least as it stands right now. Yeah. Yeah, I've seen something similar. There was a party that used to happen in Los Angeles called Disco Dining Club. And it was all about like having this super fancy meal and everything was to the extreme and very like Studio 54 style. And then they had to shut down because of the pandemic. And now they sell Queens of the Night NFTs, which are like pictures of various women throughout history. But as I understand it, as you buy the NFTs, you kind of work your way into this community and eventually they'll start having like real life parties again. And, and so you're kind of just like keeping them going in a way until the real world returns. Hmm. All right, Rob, what's going on with remote jobs right now? Yeah. So remote jobs are absolutely popping. I don't think that's any surprise to anybody, but they're especially rising in tech. So 
In tech, this, get this number. This is absolutely ridiculous. From January 2020 to last month, remote tech jobs are up 420% in the US. Mm, wow. So for context, that's a jump of remote making up 4% of total tech jobs to 22% of total tech jobs. But because of kind of a pair of macroeconomic factors, a lot of those jobs are actually moving abroad. And one of the most popular places that they're moving to is Canada. Hmm. And the reason, which we've covered previously when we wrote about Toronto and its kind of rise as this next Silicon Valley is, is kind of what people have called it. The big reason is immigration policy. So the U.S. allows 65,000 visas for skilled workers per year and another 20,000 for workers that hold a graduate degree from an American university, while Canada has no cap on its visas for incoming workers. Their hmm. immigration policy is a lot more friendly to workers. The U.S. has hmm. an immigration policy that's a little bit more friendly to kind of uniting families and, and that side of immigration rather than bringing in people for work. And so this has had just a massive impact on immigration into Canada. Damn. So they've had a ton of immigrants come in from China, India, Eastern Europe. Toronto has added more tech jobs than any other city in North America since 2016. They've added 80,000. What? Yeah, it's, it's absolutely nuts. That's nuts. Imagine if it was warm in Toronto. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Insane. All right, guys, that's enough about weather. Let's not go back to that again. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I guess the crazy thing about these tech jobs and the U.S. is U.S. tech companies are super, super desperate to hire people right now. The unemployment rate for tech right now is only 1.3%, which mm -hmm. is the lowest it's been since 2019. It's about a third of the unemployment rate nationally. Mm -hmm. um, so they need to hire people for these kind of skilled jobs. But a lot of these people cannot necessarily immigrate to the United States. And there's also kind of this grand resignation happening in the United States where a lot of American war workers are leaving their jobs, mm -hmm. which is resulting in a lot of these workers being hired abroad, which, I mean, if you pay any attention to politics, which I try not to for the most part, a lot of critics are arguing that if the U.S. doesn't change its immigration policy to bring in more skilled workers, it could potentially lose its crown as the mm. global leader in technology and innovation. And then, as you can imagine, there's a whole other side to that debate politically of, of people that think that we should be training American workers to do these kinds of jobs, basically. So mm. it's a pretty divisive topic, but it's this kind of strange mismatch between the supply of American visas and the demand for tech workers from American companies. Mm. I'm totally in favor of this trend. I do wonder, though, if this impending recession talk comes to fruition, how it's going to impact remote work. Obviously, remote work is being offered as kind of a, a counter initiative in this hiring market that we're in. A lot of workers are resigning willingly and there's a labor shortage. But if the labor market tightens up and these trends start to reverse, I wonder if people are going to start being pulled back into the office against their will and all of this mm. stuff is going to kind of reverse, you know. I've written about remote work a few times recently. And if you look at some of the recent studies, apparently most of them find that people want kind of like a hybrid environment, right? They want mm. to go into the office a couple times a week. They want to work from home the rest of the time. I don't know about that personally. I like having kind of a streamlined daily schedule. And so I'm mm -hmm. definitely into remote long term, but I could see your point, Zach. I, I could definitely see that kind of current dynamic where the workforce is really in control of that type of thing, really reversing course if the economy goes 
along this track for a lot longer. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like people in tech have had for a very long time the ability to be pretty picky with how they work. <laughs> and if there's a recession, we'll see if they can keep being mm-hmm. very picky. Jacob, you're really the only one who on occasion goes into the HubSpot's office. I, I think yeah. all of us on this call are remote workers. Juliet and I are obviously out in California. You and Rob are a little closer to home, but would you be interested in more of like a hybrid situation? Do you like going in the office? I'm about as hybrid as you can probably get. Right. I will literally do half the day in the office, half the day at home. That is super hybrid. Because I just like switching it up. I live very close to the office, very fortunate mm-hmm. to live close by. I can walk and I like moving around. It reminds me of being, frankly, on like a almost on a college campus where like you can go to class and go work in the library second half of the day. Hmm. You know, HubSpot's a big tech company, probably very similar to a lot of other big tech companies' office spaces right now. It's filling back up slowly, but Hmm. I don't think it's anywhere near where (laughs) it was. This was kind of funny. In the lobby, they have a table of everyone's plants that they've left there over COVID that they've been watering (laughs) for three years and they want people to take them back now. So so we'll see. I might take some. Anyone want to plant? (laughs) Uh, How about you, Zach? What have you been following? All right. So this Andy Warhol painting just sold at auction for $195 million. Mm. Now, on the surface, this is just a story about a piece of art selling for an absurdly high price. It was a portrait of Marilyn Monroe. It was one of five that he painted in the 60s. Very rare piece of art that doesn't come up very often at auction. But underneath the surface, there's a bigger meta story at play, and it's really a signal for how investors are feeling about the economy right now. So a lot of wealthy people buy art to hedge against inflation. And there are actually a lot of studies that show that during times of economic turbulence, artwork actually tends to serve as kind of a long-term store of value. It actually performs fairly well as an investment asset during recessions and times of inflation and high interest rates. So as stocks fall and interest rates go up right now, there's all this talk about a possible recession, obviously, and investors are feeling pretty bullish right now about art. And two of the biggest auction houses, Christie's and Sotheby's, plan to sell more than $2 billion worth of art in the next two weeks alone. (laughs) Oh, damn. So it's going to be a a very big spring for artwork, and it's going to be really interesting to see how that plays out at the auction houses and what it says about the sentiment of investments right now as we head into these uncertain times. That's insane. Did, I, I thought I read that Warhol, like these silkscreen prints that he did, like Marilyn, mm-hmm. I thought I read somewhere that they like did not take him long to do. He could make like five in a day or something like that. But, Rob, that's like most art that's out there. <laughs> let's be honest. <laughs> it's like an NFT mint, basically, right? <laughs> yeah. Wow. This is crazy, though. I feel like art nowadays is, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I don't buy art of this variety, but I feel like it's a very big ego game. I feel like people have realized that the next buyer will just pay more for than what, what you bought it for mm-hmm. at this rate. And that's kind of what's happening here. Yeah. I think 200 million was more or less the expected sale price. So the fact that it essentially hit that price, a lot of auctioneers see that as a very, very positive sign for the art market right now. You know, we're seeing a big slide in cryptocurrency right now. The mm-hmm. markets are down. Mm-hmm. Other investment classes are, are declining quickly. So it's revived talk that art is this kind of solid recession-proof asset. Even my mom, who's an amateur artist, has seen a huge boost in demand for her own artwork in the past year. Really? Hotels are just like buying more art. 
yeah, people are looking for art, you know? Real art. Real art. Yeah. Not NFT art. <laughs> Your mom's not in the NFT space yet. Yet. <laughs> no, I, I I have told her about NFT. She doesn't quite understand them, uh, understandably, but she's not alone. Yeah, yeah. So to close out here, we're just going to take a couple quick reader questions. We put out a call a while back for some of our readers and listeners to throw some questions into us. We picked a couple that are pretty interesting. Jacob McKenna out in San Francisco asks, what are the doable side hustles for students in graduate school in particular? Yes. Any thoughts on that? This is a good question. I wanted to answer it because I have one specifically that I've been doing that I think would actually work very nicely with grad student schedules. And (laughs) we're going to get a little personal here, but I think you'll find it interesting. I think you'll find it funny. It's very lucrative. You're going to tell us about your OnlyFans? (laughs) Not so far (laughs) off. No. Um, I had a friend out in Boston that was on the train and uh, they saw an ad for, they wasn't sure what it was for, but it basically said, we'll pay for your poop. Hmm. (laughs) <laughs> and it had a phone number, website, sent me a picture. I said, that's fascinating. I'm going to look into that to see what the deal is. <laughs> Looked into it. Next thing I know, I'm part of a drug study for some C. diff gut drug they're developing. And all they need from me is stool samples. <laughs> so I go into this place, which, by the way, is on my walk to work. It's located along my walk to work. And I do my business. And they pay very, very well. You're not going to believe me when I say these numbers, but they're real numbers. For a successful visit, they pay you $50. Wow. And they want you to go as many times as you can. They said they have people earning $1,500 a month. And they give out bonuses when you hit certain milestones. (laughs) $1,500 a month. So that's 30 (laughs) poops. Yeah, it's 30 uh, poops. <laughs> okay, so you're going like every day or maybe even multiple times a day. Yeah, you can go multiple times a day. Okay. <laughs> they work within your schedule. It's great. <laughs> so you'll like this even more. If you go, but it's an unsuccessful visit, they still pay you 25 bucks for going. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> Do they give you like Dunkin' coffee or anything to like facilitate? The- <laughs> it's a good question. They don't, but maybe they should. But there's no time limit. I did ask them that on uh, how long you can spend. In, wow. In the- All right. Well, there you go, McKenna. That's what you got to do. Side hustle right there. 1500 a month. <laughs> You're already doing it. <laughs> All right. Sean out in Toronto, Canada asks, how will VR change the tourism industry for those who can't afford travel? Juliet, want to take this one? Yeah. While I don't necessarily think VR will ever replace like the idea of a vacation, and I think people, regardless of their income level, deserve to have these sort of opportunities that enrich their lives, I think we have seen ways in which VR can get us to places that we may never go or are unlikely to visit. A great example is I watched a couple of these VR videos that took place aboard the International Space Station, a place that I personally am very unlikely to ever visit. And they were really awesome. I got to sort of just watch the way that people moved around in low gravity and how they live their day-to-day lives. And I got to look out the view screen and see Earth really far away. And it was amazing. And it was a really cool experience. And I've also done VR experiences that take place in areas where, like, theoretically I could someday go, but I might not want to. Mm -hmm. A great example of that for me is, like, I lived in Hollywood for a while, and every time someone visits, they're like, I want to go see the Walk of Fame, and I want to see the sign, and I want to do all this stuff. Mm -hmm. No, you don't. It's terrible. (laughs) It's hot. It's annoying. It's loud. It's too many tourists. And you don't really get to see anything because there's just too many people. But if I could replicate that in VR... Mm. 
and have like a guide just show me all of the cool stuff of some place and it was quiet and I could just experience it at my house. I feel like that would either replace or enhance something that I might actually go do. Hmm. So I don't think it will ever fully replace travel, but I do think it gives us the opportunity to have an immersive experience at home, either to enhance or to stand in for some sort of experience that we either can't have the way we want or will never have or or what have hmm. you. Yeah. I feel like what I'd be interested in doing in terms of travel and VR is like experiencing the extreme adventurer stuff that I will never, ever do. So Yeah, I'm never going to climb a mountain. Never. <laughs> and I, I'm saying like those guys who go into extremely narrow caves. Right. right. <laughs> mm-hmm. That could be cool. Yeah, that stuff gives me crazy anxiety to watch actual humans do it. But I think I would be down if it was like part of a VR experience. Mm -hmm. And I've also seen a lot of VR applications in just travel marketing. A lot of hotels and destinations are putting out VR teasers that were, oh, this is what it would be like if you came and stayed at this hotel and this Mm. is the experience that you could have. So we're already seeing it in marketing. We're seeing it in education. There are some applications that'll show you this is what this place looked like 500 years ago. Right. So there's definitely some cool stuff you can do with it. And I think as the technology advances, we'll see more of it. And we'll also see AR stuff. So, for example, mm. let's say you go to a museum, you can hold up your phone and, be, and you can get information on your phone screen that tells you more about what you're seeing in front of you. A cool thing that I've done, if you go to the Freedom Tower in Manhattan, if you go on the elevator, the elevator takes like 60 seconds to get from bottom to top. And the whole thing is a 360-degree screen. And as you go up, it shows basically New York City, Hmm. uh, how it developed over time. Oh, interesting. And I would totally do that with VR. So that could be cool, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so maybe the big takeaway is that the best use case for VR is going back in history and not necessarily the metaverse future. That would be super cool. Ugh. I would totally pay for that. I'm in. I would also pay, like, to your point earlier, just something like, um, you know, summoning Mount Everest costs like 70 or 80 grand. <laughs> yeah. But I would probably pay like 50 bucks to do like a very hyper-realistic, like virtual summit of Mount Everest or something. And that mm-hmm. money could maybe fund a Nepalese community or something, or I don't know, there could be like some alternate way to do these adventurous things that maybe we don't have the chance or financial means to do. Love that. That's idea. a great call. All right, Cal in Indiana asks, why is it that a bunch of music artists are suddenly releasing singles instead of Mm. albums? It just feels like everyone's releasing one song at a time. Is there a reason for that? Uh, I could take this one, Cal. So first of all, you're totally right. Singles, you know, used to be used to tease out albums. So I think, you know, us 90s kids were used to a very, very slow burn. We'd get maybe one single and then we would know the date that an album's coming out. So we go and buy the CD and they build all this hype around maybe one single that's released. But now you, you're seeing artists release up to six or seven singles. They're basically releasing the whole album. And it's part of this new strategy that A&R execs are using called a slow build. What they're doing is they're basically just leaking out the album over time or they're putting a premium on singles over albums because of the nature of the way that people consume content now. Mm -hmm. So we're in a new age of streaming and Spotify and also social, and things just move a lot quicker now. So instead of this old model where you kind of built in stealth mode and you released a CD and maybe two or three years passed between each one, they want to keep an artist in the spotlight all the way through. 
fame is very fleeting now. Our attention spans are shorter. (laughs) They want to occupy fans' time as much as they can. So instead of working in stealth on a CD, they're basically doing the equivalent of iterative design, and they're putting everything out there, seeing what sticks. They're using channels like Spotify to test demand and reception of certain songs, and then they're going back and using that information to decide which tracks in the album they should put the most marketing and manpower behind. So it's kind of a a new model where they're using social as a tool to test, but they're also using it to keep our attention focused on the artists so they don't disappear for long stretches of time between the CDs. Yeah. And I'll add on to that. It's not just that they're releasing more singles. It's that the songs themselves are getting shorter, Mm -hmm. you know, especially in the last two years with TikTok in pop music. You don't have to be in the music industry to notice that the songs have gone down like a solid minute on average. A lot of the biggest songs right now, pop songs, are like two minutes and 30 seconds. Right. Like, that's very short. And they've gotten rid of bridges. Like, they're taking parts out of songs. And it's because, like you were saying, it's all about the virality. It's all about just getting something that hits, um, just pumping stuff out. Yeah. Yeah. I have a, I have a relative who does A&R in oh, this really? space. And, you know, he, he's much older than me. And he grew up with albums. He hates this, this trend <laughs> so much. Despises it. <laughs> well, what's funny about this too, Zach, is like on the other side of singles, like albums seem to have gotten way longer. Like I read this article a few years ago about why albums are getting so long. I think it was in Rolling Stone or something like that. And it was after Chris Brown put out an album that had 45 tracks on it. And I guess like, yeah, it's insane. Insane. It clocked in at two hours and 38 minutes. And I think like what they're trying to do is game the system in a different way. I think the data shows that the longer your album is, the more likely it is to generate streams and streams can result in getting on billboard charts and stuff like that. And so like, it's the exact opposite of quality over quantity. Like these artists are literally just putting out like yeah. anything that they can just to try to extend the plays and get as many streams as they possibly can. It's, it's pretty much the exact opposite. I, I guess they kind of fit together, the the single and long album strategy. Uh, but Man, I got to say, I miss albums, particularly concept yes. albums. Yes. This is cliche as hell. I'm wearing Dark Side of the Moon shirt. Yes. <laughs> I love concept <laughs> albums. I just, I don't know. There, there's something lost in just the pure single play it's it's all geared towards sales i mean some of these singles are great you know they're bangers or whatever but mm-hmm. <laughs> i don't know it, it it's kind of parallel in the trend to like people not reading books anymore it's like i i miss just sitting and listening to something for an hour and like not doing anything else <laughs> yeah i know it sounds crazy totally an hour <laughs> yeah there's a company that will press your ashes onto a record when you die that's uplifting <laughs> yeah yes i'm gonna put that one in my will i love that press rob's ashes on uh, casey musgraves <laughs> By the way, it's a humongous, humongous industry. It's a booming space right now. Death tech. Death tech, uh, cremation services, mm-hmm. and making things out of people's remains. All kinds of jewelry, stones, all kinds of things, and apparently mm-hmm. records. Wow, <laughs> crazy. All right, one more question here before we hop off. Natalia and Austin, this is very lighthearted. What kind of coffee are you all having? I can kick this one off. So we do full beans. We grind them, make the coffee at home. It's this company, Vermont Coffee Company. It's organic. It's good. We have this non-dairy creamer. It's called Laird's Superfood Creamer. And I believe it's this guy, Laird Hamilton, who's a pro surfer. (laughs) 
and it's delicious. And then we mix it with some local honey. Hmm. So it's kind of involved for a coffee routine, but, um, sounds good. Nice. Yeah. That that's what I do every morning. I have a subscription to trade coffee, which sends you a different bag every month. We have an espresso machine that I bought for $75 a really long time ago. Great purchase. Uh, I usually put cinnamon in the grounds and then I ice my coffee every day because it's hot here and I drink it with milk. And then if I run out of coffee, I just go to the shop around the corner and buy whatever is Colombian because I'm Colombian. And so I, I, feel, <laughs> I feel very connected nice. that way. Jacob, you got yourself a routine? Um, as for myself, I don't drink coffee at all. <gasps> the only thing I drink semi-regularly that's not water is chocolate milk. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Jacob, I also, I've never drank coffee. I love coffee. Um, I just can't handle the caffeine. It mm. totally screws me up. Most of my mm. friends drink like two or three cups of coffee a day. You guys are impressive. Yeah. All right, everyone. Uh, that's going to do it for us today. Thanks for tuning into the Hustle Daily Show. We're a proud part of the HubSpot Podcast Network. Our editor is Robert Hartwig, and our executive producer is Darren Clark. If you liked what you heard today, we've got a lot more tech and business coverage over at thehustle.co. Have yourselves a great day, and we will catch you all tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs>